and um, go to 54, Psalm 54. I uh, found a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great um, English pastor um, a past days, not, not a long time ago. He lived up in our century at least, where some of those other ones, they go way, way back. But he made this statement. I sometimes think that the very essence of the whole Christian position and the secret, we like secrets, don't we, secret of a successful spiritual life is just to realize two things. I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and no confidence in myself. You know, that really is it. Because as long as you've got confidence in yourself, or as Paul would talk about confidence in the flesh, in that area, in that area, you don't feel any particular need for God. And that will affect your prayer life. That will affect your dependence. That will affect your walk with God. Uh, all of those kind of things. But when I come to understand that I can have no confidence in the flesh, as the Bible teaches us, and then that all of my confidence has to be in God, then that really does change everything. I think about the children of Israel as they had been brought out of Egypt, they'd gone through the Red Sea, they go through all of that wilderness experience, and then they come to the Jordan River. Remember that? And there they are at Kadesh Barnea, and it's time to go across. And uh, they send some spies out to look at the land, and when the spies come back, the majority report is can't do it, can't be done. The city's walls are too high. The people are like giants. And uh, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Remember that? Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said we can do this. God has given us this land. There's no reason to think that we can't because God never leads you to do something that he doesn't empower you to do. I know they didn't actually say that, but that's what they were thinking. And remember, the people voted to go with the majority report. And so God said, okay, all of you, except for Joshua and Caleb, you're going to die in this wilderness, never going over into the land. And uh, it took 40 years. Don't you know Joshua and Caleb got a little impatient? I, I know there was some little Israeli grandma that was there, and it was kind of like um, Mother's Day recognitions when you have the oldest mother and the oldest mother in the church is recognized, and it's like, you can see number two is going, is she ever going to die so I can get the flowers, right? And you know Joshua and Caleb were probably thinking, you know, we got one left, one left. Oh. And they go, how is she today? Oh, she's fine. Oh, great. You know? Then they hear her sneeze, and they cross their fingers and say, please, you know. And finally, finally it happens. And they get to cross over. The new generation with these two old men, Joshua and Caleb, get to, you know, cross the Jordan River and go over and take that land that God prepared. Because they knew all the time, all the time, that God would not give them that land and God would not call them to go possess the land if he didn't empower them to do that. And that's one of the things we are so quick to forget there are some commands that God gives and my first reaction is like yours oh yeah I can do that I can do that and it's kind of exciting 
But there are some of those commands that take a step of faith and you look and you go, oh, I'm not sure I could do that. And that's really the way we ought to be about everything, to know our inability is God's ability. He wants to show off through us, somebody said. He wants to put himself on display by doing those things that we could never do. And that, folks, is the Christian life. He's exactly right about that. Every sin problem you have boils down to this. Are you depending on the flesh or are you depending upon God? Everything that you need to do, every stronghold that needs to be broken can be broken by the power of God. But as long as you're thinking you can do it, strategizing and working hard to do it in your own strength or in your flesh, it's never going to be done because uh, the flesh is never able to please God. So think about that. And then think about why does David, especially in the Psalms, why does David, a good guy, a giant killer, anointed king, a man after God's own heart. Why does he have so much trouble in his life? And think about what we just read, that quote by Dr. Lloyd-Jones. What do you think might have been happening there? And I've got a suspicion that David was so, shall we say, competent. I mean, after all, he could write songs like nobody's business. I mean, we might look at songs now that are, you know, popular, even some old standards. They don't even match the songs that still exist from David's pen coming out of his heart. Everybody knows, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? And we know those things. And David is the one that wrote those. I wonder if David ever had a problem with his own competency. I can do that. David was a skilled warrior. You know, when uh, he got ready to go and stand up to Goliath, you know, when everybody said, David, the professional soldiers are scared to do this. The king's not doing this. You're just a kid. You're a junior high kid. And he said, I watched my father's sheep, and a lion came one day, and I killed it. The bear came, and I killed it. What's this guy? I mean, I think David kind of had this exuding self-confidence. Because no matter what he did, he seemed to be pretty good at it. And then we see him standing in front of the giant. And the giant makes fun of him and said, What am I, a dog that you would say? you got to be kidding me, was basically what he was saying. I'm insulted that I told you to send your champion out and you send me a kid? You remember... He told David, he said, I'll kill you and grind up your bones and all of that. I'll feed your flesh to the birds. I mean, come on, let's get this over with. And remember David, as he said, you come against me with a spear and a sword. I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And David, there he is, that little bitty kid saying, this isn't even a fair fight, Goliath. You're coming after me with a sword. I've got a hydrogen bomb. You know what I'm saying? And... Uh, so David, we see those sides of him. Tremendous faith in God. But he also must have had so many times when maybe he was just a little bit too confident in himself. You know why I think that? Because God sure put him through the ringer, didn't he? I mean, every time you turn around, being a man after God's own heart did not prevent trouble, pain, battles betrayals, right, wars. 
In fact, it seemed like David had more than his fair share of all of that. What do you think God was doing whenever David, even as a king? I mean, you'd think once you get to be king, that's it. Then he has to run for his life. Then he has to fight. Then he has trouble in his family. And on and on and on it seemed to go. What do you think God was teaching David during that time? And I think whenever you see David kind of exerting himself and doing what he wants to do, you get Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. You get those kind of things. When you see David in all of his, I can handle this, I'm the, I'm the man and I've got it, and you see a daughter you know, and a son that, uh, well, the son rapes the daughter, right? And then you see turmoil, and you see them getting killed, and rebellion from his own son. And then David tells his general, you know, whatever you do, spare Absalom, and the general doesn't do that. And David weeps and mourns and all of this kind of stuff. I think David's life, as one person put it, he's an ordinary man in the hands of an extraordinary God. And that's really true for all of us. You are an ordinary person in the hands of an extraordinary God. But we don't always feel like that. Sometimes we feel like we are the extraordinary man in the hands of an ordinary God. And God needs us and what can I do for God and all of those kind of things. And then we get depending upon the arm of the flesh. And the old hymn says, the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. And so God takes you and he takes me as he orders our steps and he takes us into storms. He take us, takes us into traps, into trials. Why does he do that? Because he is teaching us to depend upon him. And so uh, this particular psalm, when you read the little introduction thing to the chief musician with stringed instruments... A contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David not hiding with us? Okay. Ziphites, there you go. There's a group of people you don't run into every day, right? The Ziphites. Be interesting if you did your ancestry DNA and they came back and said you're 30% Ziphite. I don't know about you, that worry me a little bit. What in the world is a Ziphite? Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But let's read this little psalm, Psalm 54. And notice some of the things that David says in here, very familiar, very familiar. Is that because God is letting him down? Or is it because God is sovereignly in control of his life and he is bringing David to a better understanding of himself and a better understanding of God? So he says, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers, or foreigners, have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. What do you think about that? Tell you what I would think my natural position would be. What's wrong with this picture? The godly man is having his life threatened. And the ungodly seem to be calling the shots. That doesn't seem right. So verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. And the Lord is with those who hold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off 
in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. That's uh, interesting. It's not terribly unfamiliar. You may have never read that psalm before. It's maybe that uh, you're looking at it and it's the first time you've ever read it. Probably not, but it could be. And you look at it, and I don't think you would have any trouble believing that David wrote it. It sounds like David's psalms. And some of the things that he says in there, it sounds very familiar. Hear me, Lord. Save me, Lord. Listen to me, Lord. You know, all of that kind of thing. And then um, he also talks about, there's a kind of a triumphant note in there. It's very rare that you find David, even when he is at the depths, that he just kind of stays there. It's like he can't help but say something good about God, no matter what his situation is. It's like he just can't help but hope. It's like he just can't help but find a light shining in the darkness. And, of course, that's the way it always should be. That's the way we ought to be. David was... Um, you know, real and genuine, and he had real troubles, right? But he was also an optimist, kind of an incurable optimist here. And when you look at the, uh, the psalm, and, and he starts off like he always does, save me, right? And uh, do it by the power of your name. And, uh, of course, the name of God, that's how we identify him. And God's of all the pagan nations, they all had names. We read about the Baals and Moloch and, you know, some of those others that are in there. They all had names. And uh, they believed, of course, as you know, that there were certain gods and goddesses. There were a lot of them. They were polytheists in that day and age. Not the Jews, but everybody around them. And they believed that uh, you've got your god, I've got my god. And they were so violent and warlike, they believed that gods inhabited certain territories. And they believed that if they ever attacked you and they conquered you, that meant my God is bigger than your God. My God was successful, your God failed. And you have all of those kind of things like whenever they would capture the Ark of the Covenant... The Philistines just assumed that this box is the Israelis' God. And we got it. And you remember that interchange when they put it in the, uh, the temple of Dagon? And when they come in, their God had fallen over like it was bowing to the Israeli God. To the box. God in a box is what they thought, right? And so they have to prop up their God. And, and don't you think that they would kind of go, wait a minute, if we have to prop up our God... Something's wrong, right? We conquered these people. We have the Israeli God in this box, and yet our God has fallen down before it. And then they come back. I don't remember offhand how many times. Is it two times? It was at least two. It might have been three. But they come back one time, and uh, God has uh, taken the head and hands and feet off of Dagon, and it's like, oh, we don't want to do this anymore. And that's when they decide to take the Ark of the Covenant back. And what was God saying there to them? He was even graciously telling the Philistines, your gods are nothing and they're fake. I'm the true and living God, not just of Israel, but of all the earth, not just of a certain race, not just of a certain uh, territory. I'm the God who made the heavens and the earth. 
And so when David says, save me uh, according to your name, he's saying, take your name and enforce your will over all of the ungodliness that is coming against me. It was a cry for the Lord, exert yourself. Like we might say, you know, put some muscle into it and, and show who is really in charge here. And that was David's desire. And so even when he cries out for God to save him by his name, when he's asking for vindication, I mean, after all, Lord, you're the one that anointed me. I didn't anoint myself. I didn't volunteer to be the king. I'm not running for office. You're the one that chose me for all of this. And so, Lord, show your strength according to your name, that name that Paul said is above every other name, and vindicate me because you're the one that put me in this position. And the reason Saul hates me is because I'm a man of God and I've been anointed to take his place. And here I am. I'm in trouble. Lord, this is on you. This is on you. When you read those words, they're not just a cry for help. They're a cry of faith. They're a cry for the glory of God to be displayed and exerted in a time and in a situation where it was not happening. This is David. He's a man after God's own heart. In fact, as I think about that, the very opening part of this prayer it's a whole lot more God-centered than I thought it was it's really about God and it's really about his truth and so he's praying to be heard that's understanding the grace of God God has no reason to hear even David David's a sinner like we are and it's only by God's favor undeserved favor that he would hear anyone especially David's cry right now and he talks about these people that have risen up against him and the oppressors who have sought after his life that would have to be King Saul and he said that they have not set God before them they're doing it on their own wicked motives selfish motives all of that kind of thing this is not under the leadership of God you know we forget that sometimes when we're walking through this world it doesn't really matter what is happening to us or what's not happening to us but everything that goes on in the world is passing away right it's dying it's filled with death and the only power and the only strength behind any false religion behind any false god an idol or anything else or people that will stand in opposition to the Lord you have to understand what the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but we do wrestle against principalities and powers and thrones and dominions he's talking about demons the energy of this world is a demonic energy even if it pretends to be righteous and holy and good and sweet and kind and tolerant and all of that because boy those nice sweet kind tolerant people can sure turn on a dime sometime and they can get awfully mean and awfully intolerant um, this is what David understood uh, to some degree I don't know how much he understood about all of that because Ephesians 6 hadn't been written yet but he did understand it these people that are after me do not have God before their eyes they're not pursuing God now notice how he turns it around and he says after you think about that he says behold God is my helper that's kind of a bold statement isn't it you know when you're talking about who's on the right side 
David would say, hey, all you have to do is look at this. I'm in pursuit of God's heart, and God has called me. God has anointed me. God is with me. He's my helper, and uh, the Lord is also with those who uphold my life. You remember when he was running from Saul in those caves, he had a group of men who were with him. And these men were, in a sense, taking their lives into their own hands because they knew one thing. If David was defeated, they were toast. It'd be considered treason. And in those days, treason was always met with death. So if Saul ever got David, if Saul ever cornered this little band of men, this little army of these valiant men, they were dead. And David is saying, and yet even though Saul has all of the armies of Israel, and he has all of the resources, he's got all of the spies, he's got all of the money, he's got all of the soldiers, he's got all of the weapons, he said, but the Lord is my helper. In other words, just like he would say with Goliath, when David thought and contemplated about all of this, he was thinking, poor Saul and poor armies of Saul. This isn't even a fair fight. Why? Because you've got swords and spears. I've got the Lord. This isn't even close. And more than that, all of these people who have sold out their lives for me, because of God's plan and promises on my life, the Lord's upholding them too. Can you imagine how many times David would have to say, Hey boys, you remember that story I told you about the prophet coming to see me? And you remember how God chose me through the prophet Samuel to be the king of Israel? Well, they all remembered Samuel. He was a hero. He said, don't worry. We're on the Lord's side. And the Lord is with us. And anybody who is helping me is doing the will of God. And we don't have anything to be afraid of. Now, you think David felt that way 100% of the time? Well, there again, all you have to do is read through the Psalms and realize David had his ups and downs. He's kind of like us. Yet the direction of his life was toward the Lord. And so he understood that the Lord is going to repay his enemies for their evil. And notice he didn't hesitate to call it evil. You know, sometimes, well, I don't really want to say anybody's evil or anybody's bad. David wouldn't hesitate. In fact, when David prayed here, he said, cut them off in your truth. You know, somebody's going to live and somebody's going to die. It was a, a brutal culture and a brutal world. And the reality was either David was going to live or he was going to die in this situation. There was no real neutral ground. And they weren't just going to shake hands and walk off of the field and, you know, be good friends. This was to the death. Either they're going to die or I'm going to die. And so David said, Lord, if it's down between the two of us, I'd rather it be them. You know, I'm following you. I'm pursuing you. You called me to this. I didn't call myself. And they're wrong. Go ahead and deal with them. That's a pretty bold prayer and pretty brash and all of that. And sometimes I wonder if our confidence in God and in his word is not really strong enough to take those kind of stands. And then he, uh, after that, he says in verse 6 that as a result of this, I'm going to sacrifice to you. But there's a word in there that is really interesting. I will freely sacrifice to you. In other words, David says, your work in my life and your power and your glory is so awesome just following the demands of the law is not going to be enough. I'm not going to do simply what I am commanded and required to do 
by the law of Moses. I'm going to go way above and beyond that and offer free will offerings to you. I'm going to do sacrifices that aren't required. I'm going to give offerings that aren't required because that's where the joy really comes in. And so David makes that vow unto the Lord, remembering that it's good. Why is it good to do that? Look at verse 7. This kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul. For he has delivered me out of all trouble. wonder what he's thinking about. You know, Saul threw a spear at me, and Saul didn't miss, but he did when he threw it at me. Wow, that must have been God. Can you imagine David had a guardian angel there when the spear came flying over there that the guardian angel tips it away, and uh, there it goes against the wall, and Saul is angry not only uh, at David, but he's angry because he missed. Now he's got to save face so to speak. He's got to go after David and he's got to kill him because everybody knew that's what he intended to do and he didn't do it. I wonder if David was thinking about that. I wonder if David was thinking about maybe watching the sheep and uh, while he's there playing his harp and singing to the Lord and the sheep are bleeding, you know, uh, not B-L-E-E-D, but B-L-E-A-T. And uh, they're doing that and all of a sudden he hears a low, threatening growl. And he looks up, and there's a big old lion. And the lion is stalking. And David goes, not today. These sheep belong to my father, and I'll give my life up before I'll give you what belongs to my father. And think about the honor, and think about the passion that David had. And so what does he do? He kills the lion. I wonder if he's thinking about that. Or maybe something else. The Lord has delivered me. Do you have any times when the Lord has delivered you? Do you have any situations? I was thinking, uh, Brother Steve, just at the end of November when you had that big, long, day-long surgery and all of that. And then look, here he is. I'm thinking about people that we prayed for them and everything looked bleak and they're still here. You know what I'm talking about? I'm at times when people needed a job and they weren't sure how they would take care of their family. And we prayed, and sometimes we gave to them and helped them and encouraged them. And now their family's grown and they're empty nesters. Wow, God did it. And so many times that the Lord has delivered us. And I wonder how many times we don't even know that He's delivered us. You know those times when you stepped off of the curb to cross the street, and for some reason you took one extra look and realized a car was coming and you step back. Have you ever done that? I almost got killed in Sydney, Australia. They drive on the wrong side of the road. Which means when I looked, I looked to the left and it was clear. So I stepped out not knowing they were coming this way. And somebody grabbed me and pulled me back. You know, there are times like that that the Lord delivers your life. And you may not even realize it was the Lord. In fact, your heart beats because of the will of God. Did you know that? And your brain functions because of the will of the Lord. And uh, you think about how your body functions and how medicines work. Uh, speaking of surgery, isn't it amazing that not only can somebody cut you open and manipulate things and sew things and fix things, but then they put it all back together and you don't have to live the rest of your life like that because your body heals. I don't understand how your body heals. 
Maybe there's a scientific explanation that's kind of over my head. But I'll tell you one thing I do know. God is the one who is the healer, right? As the creator. That is amazing that we can do that. This is God delivering us. We need to look back on that and think about all of the times that he has done that and delivered us out of trouble. And then how many times... That last phrase is interesting. And my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. You know, there are times when we will pray and speak against the enemies of the Lord, the powers of darkness. And you know how many times has God honored that and answered that, put a hedge around you? How many times in the Old Testament... You read about the enemies of Israel coming up. You know what the Lord does sometimes? He sustained Israel and then he let the enemies, well, they turned on themselves. God's not the author of confusion. That comes from the enemy. And sometimes the enemy comes marching in with a plan and a strategy. And God says, not today. And they turn on each other. Their plans disintegrate. Sometimes that happens in politics. Sometimes that happens in the culture. And a lot of times I'm sure it happens just in the spiritual realm that we don't even see. How come if the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy, how come you're not dead? Let that sink in. If that's what his plan is, how come you're not dead? Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Somebody say amen to that. And a sovereign God ordering your steps. I wonder how many times God orders your steps and you go to the right when the enemy was prepared for you to go to the left because they didn't know what you were going to do and God took you this way and they go, now what do we do? I mean, think about all of the times the Lord has sustained you and delivered you and answered your prayer and things that could have been so destructive to you on so many levels, it didn't happen. And what the enemy planned for you, it disintegrated. Think about their frustration. They can never outdo God. God never has to wait on the enemy to go, let's see what they're going to do. Let's see. He already knows what they're going to do. But the enemy has no idea what God is going to do. And think about all of those times. See, that's what David is thinking about. This all goes back to God and to God's power. Now, I want you to turn to the book of 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 23, and we'll start reading in verse 15, because this is what was going on. Um, David has been running for his life, and uh, there was a town there that David heard about that the Philistines were going to take over, and so David goes in and liberates that town. But then they hear, because of that, when uh, people start, as they do... They start talking about it, and Saul gets word of it. And so Saul is going to start heading toward David, and he's making plans. And uh, you read the backstory on all of that, and um, people come to Saul, and they're giving information on David, because after all, Saul is still the king, not David. And so it says in verse 15 that David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph. Ah, okay, that's it. A Ziphite lives in 
Ziff, yeah. Aren't you glad those of you who live in Moore, you're not named after the... Yeah. So a Ziffite lives in Ziff, and a moron lives in... Yeah. Um, in the wilderness of Ziff at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, good old Jonathan, arose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. I wonder how many times you do that for somebody. And he said to him, Do not fear, speaking to David, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Mm. That's not usual, is it? That's not normal. That's love. Saul, my father, also knows this. See, when David said they don't have God before their eyes, Saul knows what the will and the plan of God is, and he's bound and determined it's not going to happen. Boy, that's an exercise in futility, isn't it? Talk about angry. He knows. So does your enemy, by the way. So does your enemy. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at uh, Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of someplace very difficult to pronounce, which is south of another place that's very difficult to pronounce? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire, not the will of God, but your heart's desire, to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Okay, you can read the rest of it uh, sometime. It's interesting. And uh, Saul didn't really want to get involved in all of that because he said, I may go and spend time and resources, and then he's moved somewhere else. You know, you, you find him, you trap him, and then you let me know where you've got him and that kind of stuff. But that's the background of the psalm. The Ziphites. They come to, and, and they're fellow members of the tribe of Judah, by the way. This is David's family. Distant relatives, but family. This part of the clan. And they go to Saul, and they say, Saul, you do realize David's hiding out in our territory here. I mean, we can help you. And I'm sure they wanted something out of it. But they didn't care about selling David out because David's a nobody at this point. Nobody expects him to be king. Nobody expects him to be anybody great. Nobody expects him to write the Psalms or a lot of them. Nobody expects anything like that. This is just a matter of getting the favor of the king, the one who is really in power right now, and making sure we get something out of it and we're in good with him. And they're going against God, of course. But they don't realize that. They don't, probably don't even care. And Saul knows he's going against God. Jonathan testified to that. But he doesn't care. He's going to have his own way in all of this. And so David says, here's point number one. I'm engulfed in a trial. Have you ever been engulfed in a trial? 
It's like you're in a tsunami. You're being thrown around and you can't breathe and you can't find which way is up and you don't know what to do in all of that. And that's why David cries out, save me, because David knew he couldn't save himself out of this. David knew if it's left up to just man against man and army against army and strategy against strategy, David knows there's no way he can uh, come out of this alive. And so he prays for that to happen. There's no other way. There's no way out and there's absolutely no hope. That's where David is. Why is David in that situation? By the plan of God. Believe it or not, by the plan of God. What is God doing in that? Teaching David that when you can't depend on yourself or anyone else, you can always depend upon me. That's what God is taking us through trials as well. Because we've got to learn that and we're not very good at it. Number two, notice that David is eager to trust. In the midst of saying all of that, what does he say? Behold, God is my helper, and the Lord is with those who uphold my life. You know, um, some of us, when we get into a trial, we are eager to run to depression. We're eager to run to fear. We're eager to run to despair. And notice here, David could. David could. And it would be understandable if he did. But he didn't. He ran to God. He was eager to run to God. And I just want to challenge you. Next time a difficulty comes up in your life, don't automatically go negative. Don't go dark on all of that. Run to the light and run to the Lord and run with eagerness, His presence and His nearness, His power and all of His promises. Now thirdly, notice that David is expecting to triumph. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off with your truth. David's looking at God and saying, how can a God who controls the universe fail? How can a God who knows everything fail? How can a God who commands the armies of the host of heaven, how can he fail? How can a God who knows what the enemy's going to do when the enemy doesn't even know what they're going to do, how can he fail? And as the old hymn says, he cannot fail, he must prevail. Have faith in God. And that's really what this was. And so David is expecting to triumph. So when the waves of sorrow and grief and betrayal and attack and humiliation and all of that, when they come your way, are you eager to trust in God and do you really expect to triumph? And I, I wonder sometimes if we could listen in, if God would record our prayers. I wonder if our prayers are prayers of expectation, faith, and victory, or our prayers are, God, please help me if there's anything you can do. I'm not really sure you can do much about this, but if you can, help me out. I mean, is that kind of the way we sometimes pray? Not David. Man after God's own heart, he expected God to triumph and to fulfill all of his word. And number four, David is encouraged by thankfully remembering. Notice he goes back to, I'm going to freely sacrifice to you and I'm going to praise you. Why? Because you have delivered me out of all trouble and my eye has seen its desire on my enemies. I've watched Goliath fall. I've watched the bear fall, the lion fall, and I'm still alive now. I saw the spear miss me when it probably shouldn't have. I've seen what God can do, and I've seen what happens to the enemies. God is a delivering God. And there's something about this that leaves us on the note of David going, you did it before, God. Why would you not do it now? How can it not happen now? And you know what I've noticed sometimes in myself, and in other people. Well, I know God did it then, but he's probably not going to do it now. 
He's probably pretty tired of doing it. And he's looking at me and going, seriously? You in that trouble again? Well, not this time. You know, you ever feel like that? Not David. He realized this is a God who never changes. And that never changing God never, never, ever varies in his love for you. It's always constant. It's always sure. And let me tell you, it's always maximum. It's pedal to the metal love for you. No matter where you are or what you're doing or what you've got yourself caught in or anything like that. This is a God who delights in delivering his people. And in that, he is also teaching us, as we went back to Mr. Jones, not to trust in ourselves, but to have supreme confidence in God. So, let me just wrap it up by saying this. As David remembered, we need to remember as well. And that memory needs to encourage us. So, here's what I would encourage you to do. Exhortation here, right? Let the trial do its work. The trial is supposed to teach you to trust in God. Let it do that work. That's the purpose. God has not forgotten you or abandoned you. The enemy has not gotten the upper hand. God is teaching you. The sooner you learn that, the better off you're going to be. And turn to God more eagerly than to despair. And when the enemy says, you're whipped, you're toast, this is over, we've got you right where we want you. How many times in the Bible stories do you know did it look like, well, this is curtains for Joseph. No, it wasn't. The Lord had only just begun to work in Joseph's life when he was sold into slavery, right? Think about how many times you read about those kind of things in the Bible. Run to God more eagerly than you do to despair. Here's the, the third thing. Expect triumph and victory. Our God has already won the victory. He's already conquered. And he wants that victory to be expressed in us. It's not normal for somebody to be crucified and then be raised from the dead in three days. Well, if God can do that, then he can do anything, anything, anywhere, at any time in your life. And understand also that you need to encourage your heart by remembering the stories of the Bible and also the testimonies of others. Think about the answered prayers of your own life and of your own past. And when you do that, you know what will happen? You'll start realizing the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. But what do you do? You have the God of the universe living inside of you. And as he lives through you and thinks through you, as he controls your decisions, and as you have supreme confidence that he will always lead you right and he's leading you from victory unto victory, right? then you realize, I can smile in the face of my enemies because they're already defeated and I'm already victorious. It's just a matter of time until that all is manifested. And so walk with the Lord. Be encouraged and be strengthened because your God has already won the victory, even that victory that you need for the trial that you're going through right at the present moment. Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches or his own. That's you. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in in God. Can anybody say an amen to that? Amen. Okay, I hope that encourages you a little bit. And we're going to have a word of prayer and then we're going to uh, shut it down here so that uh, those of you who are at the choir and orchestra, you don't have to just rush from one thing to another.